This is Stories from the Storm, a series of oral histories on Hurricane Harvey from Houston Public Media and the Houston Flood Museum. Today, Dean Gladden, Managing Director of the Alley Theater, and Perrin Leach, Managing Director of Houston Grand Opera. They tell the story of going downtown together after Harvey and surveying the damage, the difficult road to recovery, and the proud moments of resilience along the way. I'm Dean Gladden, Managing Director of the Alley Theatre. I'm Perrin Leach. I'm the Managing Director of Houston Grand Opera and the Board Chair of Theatre District Houston. So, Perrin, the storm was Saturday night and it was raining all day. And and I remember getting up in the morning and, and looking down my driveway and was watching the water come up. You know, I'm thinking, oh man, it's going to hit, it's going to hit the first floor. So we were putting furniture up on the second floor and, and then the next morning, the water had all receded, even though it rained all night. So it was amazing. And then, as you say, Monday, it's still raining. Storm is still centered over us. And yet... It... The roads were clear. Yeah, clearish. Clear, well, clearish. Our, our roads, our drive... Our, yeah, our, yeah, our, yeah, roads, our, our roads, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and because you live so close, I wanted to see how you were doing anyway. So I gave you a ring and said, hey, listen, I'm thinking of going downtown. And, and Caroline, my wife in the background, going, you're not going downtown. And we're going... Anyway, I'm going downtown. Did you want to come down and see what see what's going on in the theater district? Yeah, and I and I was like thrilled because I'm thinking, you know, my cars aren't tall enough just in case we get into trouble. And you said you've you've got you got high wheels. Yeah, and, uh, and we're going down. And if we get there, we get there. I know exactly. But you know, we wanted to make sure we got down here and just see the state of the buildings. Well, it it was shocking to to me because. I was sure that we were protected because we had put in the submarine doors in the tunnel. Yeah. The first building we went into was the Alley Theater. And when we entered, we walked into this stairway uh, of the Newhouse Theater and we looked down and the water was up to just below the ceiling. We couldn't believe it. Yeah. And that kind of recognition and realization that Oh my God, this is going to be awful. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, no clue. It, and it was kind of a a black water. Oh yeah, and and the, I'll never forget the smell. The smell was unholy. Yeah, I mean, just really nasty. And we had our, you know our, our flashlights and our phone torches, <laughs> and we're take, trying to take pictures of it, and it's just murky, nasty. Because there was no electricity and everything was dark, and yeah, yeah. so all you could see was this huge pool of water and you could also see along the wall the high water mark because it yeah. had gone down from Definitely. the high water mark yeah, it was what two or three feet down from where it had yeah. clearly got to and yeah. then receded so it was it was literally up to the ceiling in this room it's yeah. crazy yeah. yeah and i just figured well if this room's gone that means the basement's gone yeah which had been flooded with allison uh, back in 2001 and all i could think about was how are we going to pump this out yeah I think that's one of the things that when you've got to these positions, the emotional impact of it is immediately overrided by the practicality of yes. like, oh my God, here we go, We've got to get this yeah. done. Yeah. It was like, how many things do I have to get done today? Yeah. And for us, the biggest, most important thing was uh, our general manager, Tenike Swackhammer, because we ha- he had been in charge of our overall construction uh, when we redid this building. And so he uh, literally on, on Monday got on the phone and he called the M&M Properties who, who run our building and run the parking garage building and the Bank of America building. 
and asked them if they had someone on contract and they did and could we tag on to that and they said yes and so we called up the contractor to pump out the water and we literally had pumps in here on tuesday the next day it yeah, was yeah. like crazy no it's i mean it is it's that straight click into okay it's disaster recovery mode what do we got to do and to ex even find out the extent of what the damage truly is yeah so we went from here then we went uh, across the alleyway into the actor's stage door entrance right. and we looked down into the basement which was exactly same the same thing yeah same smell same smell <laughs> and and the ironic thing was we had painted on the wall after Allison, the high watermark. Yeah. And, and you could see reflected in the water, mm -hmm. the high watermark of Allison as we shined our flashlights yeah. in. I'm thinking, oh my but it gosh. Must be, I mean, it must have been even more heartbreaking for you and Tanaik having done the, this wonderful refurbishment of the building and then to come in and just find it that wet. It was. It was like shocking. I, I just couldn't believe that we had just spent all this money. And so we're, when we looked down in the basement, I just thought, oh my gosh, everything was just brand new. And now we got to do it all over again. Well, let, let me give you the other view of that, which is as someone who was with you, you hid most of that pretty well, because <laughs> it was that kind of just, okay, well, now we need to go over and see what's happened at Jones Hall yeah. and the Wortham, of course. Yeah. So, you know, so off we went, off we went, we locked up the place like anyone was going to come in and have a swim, but yeah. we, we locked up the place and headed over to Jones Hall. And it was, I mean, we didn't have keys for that, for that right. building. So we could just look and see that it, that atrium area had filled up. And, and then we, we eventually got in because we yeah. were one of the TDI engineers was there, I think, and we, you know, we took some snaps and stuff and sent them to the symphony guys who weren't with us. Yeah, because we went on the stage, walked on the stage, yeah. and that looked and then pretty we, good. Then we got down into the into the rehearsal room, and that's where the standing water was in Jones Hall, wasn't I know. it? And I'll never forget. I'll never forget you went in. <laughs> you had the big waiters on, uh -huh. so I said, "Well, I'll go in and see uh, if there are any instruments we can move or anything yeah. we can save." And so you went forward and, and you came back out and said, that's oh, not that high. Why don't you guys come on in? And we, we got to move. There were instruments. We thought there were all these instruments that we saw. It turns out that they were the instruments that they use for, for the, children to for the for demonstrations yeah, yeah. as the petting zoo. Uh, but we didn't know that. So we were picking up instruments and, and putting them into the but center you, of the room. Do you remember that, that yeah. floor? So the, 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 the fitted floor in the basement rehearsal room at Jones Hall had expanded so much that it was like in the center, it was five foot high. And as yeah. you walked across it, it slowly but surely went back down. The water had gone underneath, underneath That's it. right, and lifted it up. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was crazy. It was crazy. And we started moving everything, as you say, it moved everything to the center of the floor. And then, of course, all the water just rushed to the center of the floor because that's <laughs> where, yeah, yeah. So it was, <laughs> felt like a wasted time after that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we tried. We tried. We tried. Our, we did our best. Yeah, exactly. But then, uh, then I was obviously anxious to get over to the Wortham and see what was over there. So we, we trotted across the road there, saw that dead catfish on the road. Yeah, I'll never Where the water that. had gone up and come down again. And then uh, as we, we, we met Vivian Manhana, who runs the, the building for Houston First at the front doors. And she was standing there with a couple of TDI guys. And Vivian, you know, she, she looked very emotional because the tunnel down to the car park was completely full of water. And there had clearly been a sort of film of water, at least across the whole foyer area at ground level um, through the front doors. But um, the two TDI guys were stood next to her and, and Vivian said, hey, Pern. And we had a quick conversation about how bad it was. And she said, well, I don't really know. I haven't been backstage yet. And, and I said, no, well, that's what we, so I can't let you into the building. And I said, no, I know you can't let us into the building. <laughs> Uh, and we're going into. We're the going in now. anyway. So four of us trolled up 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 the up the escalator with the two TDI guys, just going, 
should we go with them? Should, should we go with them? Yeah. And then they did. And so suddenly we had that same walk that we did here, you know, back into backstage. And you sort of every turn, every time you come around a corner, you're thinking, okay, what's next? Well, I remember walking on the stage of the Wortham and seeing all the costumes from Nutcracker because they mm-hmm. had raised them That's up right. and had them all spread out. Yeah. And it was like, holy smokes, almost surreal to be looking at all these gorgeous, absolutely yeah. drop-dead gorgeous costumes. And, and the water on the stage didn't seem like it was that much. We no. thought, oh, the Masonite, you know, we could just pull the Masonite. And mm. we thought that that... Uh, naively thought that that would be fine. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it, it wasn't until we started really getting into and we realized how much water was in the basement and a, a majority of that had come across the stage and, and f- like flowed through into the into the basement. But you're right, that sort of the, with those big flashlights, because, you know, a stage is a very, very dark place if there's no electricity in the yes, building. Right. And flashlights with those nutcracker costumes. But luckily, we'd done a lot of clearing of stuff on that Friday. So the mm-hmm. you know, costume staff, I knew had taken a whole lot of stuff out of the basement and taken it up to our sixth floor. And the ballet had come in and put the nutcracker, thank goodness, up that sort of 12 and a half, 14 inches onto the onto the ballet wagon. So it hadn't got wet. Um, but just carnage, really, of, of just, you know, silt everywhere. And mm-hmm. as you walked across it, and you say not that much water at that point. And then you, we walked out into the scene dock. I remember that, walking into the scene dock, and there's a that storm yeah. barricade, and the water had come over that and then been trapped inside yeah. already. And, and then... Oh, well, we better go and see what your, my basement looks like. And we open that door two steps and then you know, the next down, 14 feet are just underwater. Yeah. And what all did you have underwater down there? Pretty much. I mean, our costume shop, our wig shop, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it took nearly two weeks to get that water pumped down until we could get back down there to discover the height of it. But there was clearly a big current in there as well because things had been really been like torn off the hinges and and things had been uprooted that were bolted to the floor and tables were turned up. It was a surreal thing. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that was, we didn't discover all of that, of course, until we came back to the building, you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, whatever. Um, so that, that kind of, that, that first day of just walking around with flashlights and you're right. I mean, I clicked straight into practical mode. Oh yeah. And we just got on the phones, I think afterwards and, and started calling everybody to, okay, so we got to get the building pumped out. Then we have to find a stage for our next show. Cause we knew that we had, mm-hmm. we were in, we were in production. Yeah. Uh, we actually had one show on stage, the 39 steps, which we had to cancel the last two weeks of. And then uh, we were in uh, a rehearsal in fact, the the set was on on the stage down here underwater uh, for Describe the Night, uh, which was a world premiere, which was critical for us to get it up because it was moving to New York. So we had to get that show up. So uh, we actually uh, ran into the actors the next day. Uh, they were down volunteering over at uh, George R. Brown. And my favorite quote, Rajiv, uh, Joseph, the playwright, was saying, uh, what can I do to help? And he said, well, what do you do normally? He says, well, I'm a playwright. He said, oh, you can help with announcements. So uh. he said, <laughs> so he said I, I wrote the announcements for the George R. Brown, and, and he said, it was my largest audience I've ever had. There you go. There you go. <laughs> wow. No, I mean, I, I think that's the, the thing is that, you know, pe- people immediately wanted to help, but when, when you're building, it's just underwater. It, it, not, that's not the help you need. You need the practical help of people who actually know how to you know, pump buildings Do out things. and recover buildings. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that was one of the things that struck me most as the next sort of two weeks went through of just how impotent some you know, people felt. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, they could help their neighbors. They could help their friends. They could you know go and, and strip out houses and stuff. But from a work perspective, there was not very much to do. So we were straight into, okay, 
what's next? Where are we going to be doing our, our, our shows? Because, you know, opera houses are built because they're very specific and have very specific needs and requirements. Um, so we started looking pretty much straight away and, and, and you know, also trying to make sure that as the water came out of the building, we could actually start to be part of that recovery of the building. Yeah, yeah. We, we had 84,000 props, 70 years of props, 10,000 square feet underwater, completely underwater. We had 15 feet of water in the basement. So we, we lost uh, all but 8% of them. And that was a huge tragedy for us. And because sure. uh, uh, you can never really replace those. No. The prop department, I mean, those are their uh-huh. possessions. Absolutely. They, and, and it was just gut-wrenching to have to go through that. And then they had to come back with masks on and do an inventory and catalog the entire collection. It was really quite an effort. Yeah. So we, we had exactly the same experience, emotional experience for our costume and wig stuff. So that, that was the things that were most lost. So we took out the immediate things, but the stock essentially was lost. And, you know, an opera company runs on its stock because you know, if you need pair of boots for a chorister you need 80 pairs because there are 80 choristers you know um so we lost you know several thousand pairs of shoes all our hats all our wigs extra extra and you're right because all of those things are porous you know the insurance company were like hey none of this stuff is recoverable um that that was something that really brought it home to me when the insurance people say oh no it's too toxic for me to go down there to even look at the stuff that you you know want me to look at at that point you're like "Mm, you know Mm. what (laughs) this is Mm. not a good situation I didn't realize how, you know, toxic the water was. And, and when, they, when they basically said, you have to understand everything it touches that is not either metal or cement has to go. Mm-hmm. So when we thought, you know, we saw a little bit of water on the stage, well, that stage had taken on water, had taken on black yeah. water. Anything that takes on black water, you have to get rid yeah. of. It's like a sponge. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, all those porous materials are like a sponge, you know. And we kept, get, I kept getting calls from our orchestra. So their break room would da- was downstairs as well. Oh well, it's just it, I've got this this very valuable old case or this. I'm like, it, it's, it's gone. gone. I'm really sorry, but it's gone. Yeah. Well, the other big thing that we had to worry about uh, immediately was where our staff was. Yeah, because our staff is located all over the city, and so uh, I'm sure you have the same thing. We have a telephone tree and you you get out and and try to communicate but if people's batteries are dead on their cell phones they don't have electricity who knows yeah uh and so we spent the whole set for several days finding everybody and then asking what condition uh, everybody was in and then uh as fast as we could we put up on the internet after we had to go to a different site, take uh-huh. our server, uh-huh. as you all know. All of that stuff. Um, all that stuff, and then set up a, a fund for the employees. But it it was devastating because our employees, just like the rest of the city, uh, were all affected. Sure. I mean, yeah, you have to just make sure that the people who know, you know, that the, the line managers essentially become the point of contact. And we, we had a you know, twice a week staff meet, senior staff meeting held wherever, mainly at Patrick's apartment block has a, like a function room. And we would say to people, come get your phones charged up and then, you know, keep us in touch with the staff. Make sure you reach out to your staff pretty much every day and find out how they're doing and stuff. And that also started a mobilization effort for people to help each other in terms of stripping out houses that have been damaged and stuff. Um, but actually, you know, the, the, the reality of it is once you lose your IT system and phone system, you, you, it does become this kind of 
contact becomes very, very important and much more difficult, of course, but very important to the staff to know. And I think, you know, we did our very best to set up a clear communication strategy. We were going to meet twice a week. We we're going to do a, a, an email blast after that. So yes, you, you do need to have power for that. But uh, you know, people are pretty resourceful about finding power now for, for phones in particular, and they have batteries and battery packs and stuff. Yeah, we set up a, a Facebook uh, thing so that we could communicate to our staff. That was yeah. the best way we thought to communicate. So we let everyone know that we're going to be on Facebook, and here's it's just going to be exclusive to our employees, and you can go here and you can find out. Then I would... Uh, type up communications mm. uh, uh, to everybody about so that w- people would know what was going but on. But that's exactly it. It's just, I mean, people would rather know, even if it's bad news, people would yeah. rather know what it is because otherwise, you know, rumors start going around and, you know, the, there are sharks and alligators in the ba- in the Wortham basement. Come on, yeah, right. calm down. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, you had to just try and tell people what's going on to the best of your knowledge at that time. And, you know, I mean, obviously the thing over the next two weeks I felt the most is going back into the building you know, and we, we didn't have complete access in the way that you did, but be able to go back into the building pretty much on a daily basis and just say, look, I've seen this. This is what it is. You know, and, and that was typical. That was difficult, I think, for especially the people who were, had been housed in the basement. But once I started bringing, you know, a few sli- slightly shot photographs out and saying, this, this is, is the room that like. you're in. And, you know, you see everything just twisted and broken and stuff. People, people start to get the, oh, it's not just under clean water. It's actually devastated and and you know the, the building's been trashed beyond beyond what it can could take yeah I, um we had brought down uh, the president of our board came down on tuesday and he had uh, a big vehicle and uh um one of the first things we did was was go up in the dark because our offices uh are on top of the parking garage but there's no electricity and uh, so we had to go up and get the server because we wanted to do payroll, because uh, our payroll is usually done on Wednesday. And I thought, you know, our employees, they're going to need cash. They live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. The people are going to need cash. So that, uh, uh, so that was really critical. So we carried that server down. And, uh, That's uh, interesting use of the word we. I- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it okay. wasn't really me, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but uh, uh, Butch Mock, who is our president, uh, uh, put it in his van with our uh, IT director, and and we took it to his apartment, uh-huh. and then he plugged it in literally into his bedroom wall socket, and and hooked it up with our uh, uh, finance director, and uh, and we were able to make payroll. It's just yeah, crazy. but th- I mean, those things were happening all the time, weren't they? I mean, we, yeah. we we did exactly the same. We went in, got our got our servers down, and got them in, got them out of the building, and then we went over to the hobby center, and we you know, and Ken Vaughan, our head of IT, actually took it to his house for the payroll. Yeah, um, and then all our box office stuff eventually ended up at the hobby center, and we you know we were there for three or four months when we realized we weren't going to get back in. Um, and you found temporary offices over at the Allen Center, and then we found temporary offices two floors below you. Right, we've always been slightly below you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then once you moved out of those offices, we took over you your, moved up to our your, your luxurious yes, suite, exactly, that was great. Um, where we still are now. But it's it. But all, it was a challenge. I mean, we had to set up because we were in production. Yeah. So we had to find uh, a scene shop, a prop shop, a costume shop because we were still doing theater. 
So uh, that was that was really a challenge, and uh, we ended up uh, one of our board members, uh, his company had had moved, and so he had empty office space on the top of the 1100 Louisiana building in the penthouse, and so we ended up moving uh, our rehearsals up there because he had had a big trading room, and so it was just a big empty room. It was perfect for a rehearsal. So uh, we did uh, uh, the play uh, Cleo. We rehearsed that up there. We rehearsed Describe the Night up there. We rehearsed a children's play up there, and we put our costume shop in the boardroom, uh-huh. and and with sewing machines, etc. And we and we had our wig shop there, and we had our craft shop there. They were all up in penthouse with a great view of the city. It was a riot. Uh, is it- highly amusing you describe it as perfect for rehearsal because if you'd gone into that two weeks previously and told you were rehearsing in there you'd have been like this just won't work for yeah, us right. <laughs> but the, the idea of what is a perfect rehearsal room has changed it, drastically over changed this period of time yes, yeah. just like yeah that's a room yeah it's got a door yeah sure we can rehearse in yeah, there but and that's but, what it was yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. anything you could and couldn't do i mean we were working out of panera bread and you know anywhere with free wi-fi you'd find hdo people and then people yeah. said oh i've got this room in, in my apartment building we can use that and so staff meetings would start to happen with individual departments but it was fantastic as well the way that the rest of theater district people who had less damaged buildings you know the guys over at tuts were amazing just opened their doors and said whatever we can do to help you know and then we all started just meeting on again on a regular basis to make sure that we could then start off the recovery plans in a joined up way yeah because you know each building took different damage but everybody was affected and you know our audiences are uh, you know, stopped coming for a period of time quite naturally because you know, they, they weren't sure that the theatre district was safe. They'd, they'd seen all those photos. I mean, that amazing photo taken from um, Bayou Place over towards the alley in which it's basically just about the height of the wall going down to the I garages. Know. I mean, that was 24 hours before we came down here. It's crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Uh, uh, whenever you ask somebody for help, the answer was almost always yes. They, people, how can I help? And and you know they knew that that we were under siege, and so you just pick up the phone and say, "Can you help me?" And, and their first inclination was always yes, and, they, and almost always their answer was yes. And that was the really whole right. Houston, you know, can-do spirit that that was so rewarding that we, I think that we felt as we kind of went through this tragedy and have been feeling ever since. Yeah, that that nine days was was truly astonishing because as you say anybody even if they couldn't help you they'd say i can't help you but i know someone who might be able to and they would open there and they'd make phone calls for you and do everything and then the public holiday that was the following monday so 10 days after the storm suddenly people are back on the roads and behaving like texan drivers again and you're like oh the city's going to come back it's just going to be fine because but up to that point anybody had done anything for everybody and you know we i mean in our neighborhood we saw people in flat bottom boats going around and there's a fantastic story of a guy who who basically used his flat bottom boat to take a doctor to a lady who was about to give birth and you know yeah i mean it's like crazy crazy yeah you had a lot of those stories of of incredible rescues and and people helping people it was just really an amazing time it's it is and and it was it's it's also a challenge mental challenge if you like of of coming in and rescuing a theater building at a time when people are still out of their houses and, and you have to be very cognizant that asking staff to, to, to step up and do more to, to help, you know, you need to be aware of their own circumstances, which is why I think the communication both ways, the clarity of that was really important. Well, for, for us getting the electric in was, was key because we wanted to get Christmas Carol up. 
But one of the, the challenges that we had, as if, you know, the week before, right when we're getting ready for Christmas Carol at Thanksgiving, et cetera, um, they hook up the electrical and, and the bus unit, which is where you mm -hmm. connect the, the transformers on oh, the bus. So it connected and it, and it just burnt. And it just, I mean, it was this incredible uh, uh, fire. And, and, and you got, you got like, you, I'm in New York. I get this phone call. You got, you got five fire trucks in front of the theater right now. I'm thinking you got to be kidding me. And so, I, got, I got the call before you did from the season <laughs> symphony who were out there having a, having a cigarette at the stage door going, Hey, something's going on in the alley. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. So then, uh, uh, um, the fire department comes and they spray this white, this white thing to put it all out. And our air conditioning system is not yet on because so it, it's on generators, which means it's always on. Normally, if you have a fire, it turns it off. So ours is on. It takes all that white stuff and it delivers it throughout the entire building. I mean, all the way up to the top of the fly loft. It, mm. took, it, uh -huh. it, it took us a week to clean it. It was $350,000 to clean after that just to clean up the white stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was like you thought, really? Haven't I seen enough? <laughs> yeah, but listen, we had to say, you know, when we when we realized we were going to be able to move into George R. Brown, and, and you know, there was a lot of uh, of events to be moved out of the George R. Brown to, to allow us to be there. So, you know, we're waiting, waiting, waiting. You know, we've got a verbal kind of yes, we should be okay for the first rep period and stuff, and waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, on the Tuesday, uh, we get the sort of yeah, you're going to be okay to be in the in the what is now the Resilience Theatre, and we're loading in on Saturday. You know, and the stuff is coming from literally all over the country, as you say, yeah. direct stuff coming down from New Jersey and, and from Orlando and all over the place. And, um, and you know, it's this kind of craziness. And then we start to look at the actual calendar and we realize that if the Astros do well, then our opening night is going to clash with the divisional playoff oh, yeah. game. And the opening night of the second show is going to clash with the World, World Series. Series game. And, you know, we're all huge Astros fans. So we're wanting them to do well, but we also are like, <laughs> really? Come on. So, you know, luckily, the, the, the time they started, we started the opera at 7.30. And the ball game didn't, start, didn't have first pitch till 7.35. So we had five minutes of really... <laughs> Golden time in the middle of there where there wasn't, you know, 45,000 people trying to get into the ball game right. and 2,000 opera patrons coming down. Um, but it was, I mean, that, those two nights were completely crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, as, as Violetta started to die, you hear cheers from the ball game as Altuve smokes it out of the stadium and you're like, come on, really? <laughs> and both games ended within, again, within five minutes at the end of the opera. So, of course. you know, people are saying, I didn't get home till one o'clock in the morning, two yeah. o'clock in the morning, you know, but, um, but no, it's been that kind of year though, hasn't it? I mean, it has just, been. just, you just have to deal with what's in front of you and, and, and do the very best you can. And you did an amazing job getting back up and ready for Christmas Carol. Well, we really felt an obligation to give that Christmas Carol back to the city. We wanted to get that up, that it was, it was significant because it was symbolized kind of the recovery of the city. And this was, you know, it's a great family program. That's our gift. If we can get that up, we pushed all of our contractors, get us up so that we can do that show. And it, and it came through and it was very, very rewarding when we, when we opened it. Yeah, exactly. For us, we said to, our, you know, once we knew we were in the George R. Brown, we said to our patrons, nothing changes. We're doing every single performance we said we were going to do at the time we said we were going to do it and the day we said we were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And we, we've been able to do that all season, which is just gives, gives some sort of consistency in, in, a, in a landscape that's been so kind of crazy and inconsistent for the last nine months that consistency and it, i think it to be fair it took to the end of the calendar year for people to start 
feeling it was okay to go out and have fun again. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it was a big break, but, but the, you know, the, the Astros actually was part of that as well. You know, the city recovering and, you know, it was the, it was the sort of Hollywood movie script, wasn't it? It was. The city gets devastated by storm. Astros win. <laughs> you know, um, and let's just hope that the script still has the rockets coming through as well. But, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, so it has that, that recovery period has been kind of um, very intense, but I think that we, we should all be proud of the way the city has recovered, but also the way the arts district has just gone, you know what, we're not going to be beaten by a little bit of local weather and some, some rain. We're going yeah. to get on and, and, and do what we do. Right. Well, and the other thing is that if it kills us, we're going to make these buildings watertight. Yeah. <laughs> we now know now, we now know the 100-year storm. Now we've had the 500-year storm. So we're prepping to make sure this stuff never happens again. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to have to be biblical to get back into these buildings. Yes. I mean, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, you know, it, 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 each each building has its own challenges in terms of making sure that happens. But I know you've taken a lot of time to make sure you get it right. Yeah, it has been very rewarding, I think, for us personally as well as our staffs to see the rallying of not only they but the city and and everybody coming together in in this tragedy and and i said this once before but i'll say it again you know if i'm going to have a tragedy i'd rather be in houston than anywhere else because the people are so great yeah yeah it's been a perfect mix of inspiration and perspiration hasn't it it's just yes. like just if we put the hard work in we, we can get people behind us and we can get it done and that that's houston all over absolutely yeah. 100% Stories from the Storm is a project of the Houston Flood Museum in partnership with Houston Public Media and is supported by Houston Endowment. Visit HoustonFloodMuseum.org. <laughs>